How do you know you're up to date? When you follow EMS World, you answer that question with confidence. Because when we say EMS World, we mean the whole world of EMS. The remaining question for you is how will you stay up to date? In print, online, at EMS World Expo, the world's largest EMS-dedicated conference, and now in a podcast. This is the dawn of a brand new era of healthcare delivery, and um, you're going to want to pivot quickly because you might not have a chair at the end, you know, when the music stops. Hello, EMS World listeners. This is Jonathan Bassett, Editorial Director of EMS World, and welcome to our newest EMS World podcast. I'm joined today by Jonathan Washko. Jonathan is Assistant Vice President for Northwell Health's Center for EMS in New York City. He's also a member of the EMS World Editorial Advisory Board. So, Jonathan, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks, John. It's a pleasure. And I really appreciate the opportunity to do some follow-up from our webinar the other day and uh, hopefully answer some unanswered questions and uh, be able to provide some guidance on uh, how you can leverage telemedicine, both for COVID and post-COVID. Thank you so much. I should mention to our listeners that this is being recorded on April 8th, so we're kind of uh, still right in the in the thick of things, and, and Jonathan is certainly right right in the thick of things there in uh, New York City, so we, we certainly appreciate his time today. Jonathan also presented a webinar uh, for us, and it was titled, How EMS Can Launch Telehealth and Transport Alternatives During the COVID Pandemic. He discussed his uh, systems telehealth program, among other things, and how it's helped ease some of the overwhelming uh, strain of the, the spike in calls related to the coronavirus pandemic. So uh, you can listen to that webinar at emsworld.com slash webinars. The archive should be available by the time you uh, listen to this podcast. So I would definitely encourage our listeners to view that webinar. It'll give you some good background on what we're going to be talking about today. So we did get a lot of uh, questions from attendees, understandably, during that presentation. And many of them, Jonathan answered on that recording. What we're doing today is we're getting to some of the remaining questions and we're we're going to get through uh, as many as we can on, on the time that we have with Jonathan today. So before we dive in, I do want to acknowledge our sponsor. Uh, Zoll is a proud sponsor of this EMS World podcast. Uh, supporting healthcare providers is at the core of all that Zoll does. During this unprecedented time, Zoll is focused on ramping up ventilator production, mobilizing our critical care equipment to best provide for patients and support rescuers, and creating a strong support system for our customers and employees throughout the world. Um, Zoll says we are all affected and we stand with you. So thank you to Zoll for bringing this presentation to you today. So Jonathan, we're going to dive right into the to the questions here. On the on your presentation, you talked uh, quite a bit about uh, telemedicine and, uh, and the, the background of it and what you did in the past. Can you, again, for our listeners today, explain uh, some of the, the basic details of what CMS will and won't pay for in terms of telemedicine, including how things have changed in light of this current situation? Sure, Jonathan. Well, you know, it's it's. I would say it's still the early days of of reimbursement for telemedicine with CMS. The one thing I would remind our listeners, you know, CMS is purely for the federal reimbursement system, obviously for Medicare. 
oftentimes it sets the record in the, the regulatory environment and, and statutory environment also for Medicaid in many states. But that's just Medicare and Medicaid. So also remember, as you're thinking about things, the commercial carriers and the commercial carriers are much more nimble and able to pivot. Uh, although I'd say that uh, the federal government and CMS uh, in response to the pandemic has been as, as flexible and nimble as I could ever have seen them in the history of me doing this in the 30, I guess coming up on 34 years I've been in EMS. So to better understand telemedicine reimbursement, um, first thing I would suggest is, you know, go look it up on the CMS website, kind of help you understand. And there's lots of uh, information available. There's lots of other uh, media out there that you can go to do your homework on. But essentially, it has to be with a provider. That's kind of the first thing. So it has to be someone with an NPI, right, a national provider um, identifier number with Medicare. That includes physicians, physician assistants, nurse practitioners, and um, LCSWs. I think there's a few other categories. But in terms of our world, those are the, the providers that would qualify. And prior to the waiver, there was a lot of restrictions um, in terms of what could be billed. Um, and, and that had to do really with the patient location and uh, the patient situation. Uh, and it was highly, highly restrictive. ET3, when it was announced, one of the things ET3 brought was a waiver to those regulatory and statutory issues associated with telemedicine. And the waiver was that basically the patient could be at home, which in the past wasn't always the case. It could have a, you know, a visit from either a face-to-face visit, which isn't the telemedicine piece, or a remote visit from a, from a, a provider, as I mentioned, with an NPI. So ET3 provided us with that waiver. So that's one way to think about this. Um, you know, there's a couple of other requirements. That the, in order to get that waiver or be eligible for that waiver, the call has to have been initiated by a 911 call, and there has to be an ambulance on scene. Okay, so that was the first waiver, and that was associated with ET3. That is not available to everybody. That was only available to people who were selected to participate in ET3 and, and, and then get through the qualification process, kind of the next piece of the, the implementation plan and the con- contracting and all of that. That's not turned on yet, that, but that was part of the ET3 design. What's happened since COVID is basically another waiver, an additional waiver came out, has nothing to do with ET3. But it has to do with making our healthcare system more nimble. And that's the ability to provide patients with medical services through telemedicine and telehealth in venues and situations where it's never been before. Again, I said you know, prior to the waiver, it was very restrictive. It could only be in certain settings, certain um, demographic settings like rural and super rural settings, things like that. Or you had to be in a facility like a hospital and there was a bunch of structure and regulations around what you could and, and could not do and what you could and could not bill for. There wasn't parity uh, with an office visit in terms of payment. There was lots of different things. So what this waiver did uh, as part of COVID is remove a lot of those restrictions. So with the removal of that restriction, that means a patient can receive a telemedicine visit in their home from a qualified provider. And quite honestly, it can be from many different providers. It can be from a primary care physician. It could be from a pulmonologist. My wife works for a pulmonology practice, for example, and they had to shift and pivot because they were doing office visits and then the office got closed down because of COVID. So they pivoted and they're actually doing telehealth visits and telemedicine visits with their patients out of that physician practice. So take that concept and that idea and apply it to an ambulance service. And that's basically what we did, right, is we take that that virtual physician concept or practice and, and apply it in the 911 EMS setting. 
ET3 did not anticipate this. ET3 did not pay for this. ET3 in phase two would have paid for uh, or is designed to open up payment through uh, the, what's called a NOFO grant to be able to bring nurse call triage in, which is a component of what we do in our telemedicine system. It's a triaging system that helps us determine is the patient eligible clinically for a telemedicine visit or do they need some other type of care. And so ET3 provides capital for that. We don't know what the sustainability model for funding of that's going to be. There's been zero discussion on that. We, we can make some assumptions. But then we have this kind of all-provider, all-comer opportunity with this waiver for telemedicine, uh, including EMS. And, and that's the opportunity we took advantage of in our 911 system is we're using nurse, uh, nurse navigation system already. And we added this component of telemedicine as part of our response plan when a patient is navigated to only needing lower level of care that could be performed by telemedicine. How does the ePCR interface with with the electronic health record in your system? And is this essential to the success of the program? Uh, As a follow-up, how can we motivate hospitals to share their patient records with EMS? Yeah, so I would say this is an extremely important piece. You know, having access to the patient's medical records really changes the risk uh, situation, right, for the provider. So if a provider has access to the patient's past medical history and the medical records and can look and see, um, you know, what's going on with this patient, their ability to be risk tolerant um, in terms of providing advice is extremely higher versus if this is a brand new patient they've never seen before and, and they have no idea what this patient's background is. So one, I would say it's absolutely an imperative piece of what we do. That said, if you don't have it, you can still implement these systems. It's just going to be you know, more difficult um, to navigate that patient um, you know, without, without that information. In terms of you know, integration. Uh, we do have an integrated model. ET3, uh, one of the tenets of ET3 is a requirement to integrate your EMS data into the healthcare system data. We are in the process of doing that as we speak, uh, as is the whole New York region, working uh, to get our data into our RIO, uh, which is our regional health information exchange called HealthX. You know, all of the hospitals, for the most part in New York City, already participate in that as well as uh, now the ambulance services are, are getting involved in, in having their data available, as well as HealthX provides a front end to be able to access, for example, from the field in a web browser, all of the patient's medical interactions and, and medical you know documentation that's in the system from the entire region in New York City. So it's a pretty cool, pretty important piece for us to be able to be highly successful in navigating patients away from the emergency room. And it's all about risk stratification and risk management. And so having the documentation gives us the ability to to take on uh, larger amounts of clinical risk uh, because we we know more about the patient and their background. On the topic of ET3 and reimbursement, um, how about refusing uh, medical advice? Our next question is uh, is an unintended consequence of ET3 that's certainly applicable to COVID is that it could encourage providers to initiate telemedicine in a scenario that currently would lead to a refusal against medical advice because CMS is only reimbursing EMS for treat in place with telemedicine. So are you aware of any efforts uh, at the state or federal level to open up refusal type calls like this without telemedicine for reimbursement? You know, not yet. You know, and I think we're at an interesting point because for us, for example, the Department of Health 
Bureau of EMS uh, just put out a, a, a protocol that basically uh, takes us through a decision tree to not transport or refuse to transport, I guess you could say, or triage to not transport you know, a patient and keep them home. There is no online medical control requirement unless there's questions on that. There's no treat-in-place you know, framework with a, a telemedicine visit or anything like that. And so clearly, you know, this is uh, something that is, is uh, potentially going to be happening in the future, at least during the pandemic, and does not have a reimbursement mechanism, unfortunately, right now. Although, uh, that said, as I said on the, on the webinar, you really should be capturing these calls in your documentation systems and your billing systems, because if you're doing a COVID refusal, for example, whether that's uh, we're refusing to take them to the hospital because they don't meet criteria or the patient's refusing with medical advice or against medical advice, there is no payment mechanism. So I, I think there's an interesting opportunity here. I don't know that we'll get that paid for on a permanent basis by CMS, but at least as part of disaster funding uh, that likely will be made available under grants and those types of things, you need to make sure you're documenting these because you, uh, if I were you, we'll, we're doing this. If I were you, I would make sure that uh, we try to recover costs uh, for those types of uh, situations. In terms of RMA um, and refusal of medical advice, I mean, many communities already involve a physician when that situation arises. Um, and quite honestly, as part of ET3, uh, our understanding would be if the physician and the patient work together to whatever the decision is to, uh, that the endpoint is, including treat in place or stay in place, I would think that that refusal would become eligible for reimbursement at that time. How about looking down the line a bit, Jonathan, after the pandemic uh, has has subsided, what do you see as a as a, a timeline for the duration of the, of the type of operation that you describe in, in the webinar? Is this what we will be doing in the future? Can you kind of look into your crystal ball and predict what EMS and transports and reimbursement will look like after this uh, pandemic is no longer at its peak? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, actually, I asked the same question uh, just a few hours ago to our senior vice president overseeing our managed care who who deals with all of our payers. Uh, and he and I both agree on this, as, I, as well as I think many of the physicians I've spoken with um, that work with us agree with this, that you know, prior to uh, the end of February, they would have never thought something like this, the telemedicine and some of these things, these, there's been you know seismic shifts in how we deliver care in an extremely short amount of time. And um, it's all out of necessity. I have a saying I always like to use, which is necessity is the mother of invention, but drives acceptance of the previously unacceptable. And so all of these things are things we've always wanted to do. But, you know, the bureaucracy or the politics or the dollars uh, prevented it from occurring. Uh, but now out of necessity because of COVID, something that was previously unacceptable is now acceptable. We all believe that it's going to be difficult to put the genie back in the bottle when it comes to telemedicine. I truly believe we're seeing a seismic shift in how we're going to deliver healthcare um, in the community. Everything that Matt Zavatsky and myself and um, many others have been advocating for over the past, what, probably five years with community paramedicine and treatment in the home now has a huge window of opportunity to take advantage of. And whether you're doing a telemedicine program like we're talking about now, whether you're doing treat in place, whether you're doing follow-up visits uh, as part of a you know, COVID following of a patient, there's a huge opportunity to, to really have EMS become a much higher in the food chain, if you will, uh, you know, in healthcare. And because we're mobile healthcare, you know, again, um, what we're seeing with COVID and what we're seeing here is the ability to provide services in the home, I think are really going to uh, 
really take off. And so, yeah, I'm, our plan is we, we put this up and our intent is to not take it down. We want to keep this forward, the momentum forward. The partners we're involved with are very much supportive of this. We're bringing on additional populations, not just 911 calls, but other populations to be able to leverage what we've put together. And so, yeah, when I take my crystal ball out, I think um, this is the dawn of a brand new era of healthcare delivery. And um, you're going to want to pivot quickly because you might not have a chair at the end, you know, when the music stops. During your presentation, Jonathan, you mentioned the care in the home model and the hospital in the home model. One of our attendees was hoping you could dive into those a little bit more deeply and explain uh, more about what those terms mean. There's kind of two terms out there that I've heard right now. There's the concept of hospital at home, and then there, the more recent concept is hospitals without walls. The hospital without walls is more of a COVID response system. But there's programs out there like Dr. Kevin Manjal at Mount Sinai. Uh, I believe, has a program with community paramedicine where he's doing hospital at home. I know Matt Zavatsky um, is doing something similar, I believe, down in Texas, where patients, instead of staying in the hospital to convalesce, uh, are actually going home and then get a set of wraparound services that almost identical to what you would get in a hospital, but uh, for various reasons, you know, can receive this care in the home. That's the kind of concept we're talking about. The hospital without walls falls into this same uh, category, but we're, these are like the tents you're seeing put up, right? Um, these are the Javits Center. This is the comfort. These are these other things that, um, and it was part of CMS's waiver for alternative destinations for ambulances was to make sure we could get paid to take somebody to a tent that wasn't an emergency room, or we could take somebody to you know one of these alternative care sites or what they call an ACS um, and still get reimbursed for it. So the hospital at home concept enables us to, to take care of patients in the home. So what we're seeing with COVID, uh, and we're actually propping this up as we speak and putting things in place for this, is there's just a huge capacity problem right now, right, uh, that we have to manage. And so getting patients out of the hospital maybe earlier than you normally would in order to have capacity to take on you know, more, more critical patients is part of this hospital without walls concept including getting care in the home. And again, that's why if you look at the waiver Medicare did for alternative destinations, one of the waivers is home, right? Most patients don't meet medical necessity to take an ambulance home. Well, now you can because that, that's been waived. It's considered an alternative care destination. Now, the idea of hospital without walls or hospital at home will be for these patients to convalesce in the home. And that's where a huge opportunity exists or another opportunity exists for community paramedicine visits, for telehealth visits, and uh, everything that I think many of us with community paramedic programs and nurse call triage systems and 911 telemedicine systems that are being put in, you know, that's this whole new space, at least for COVID. The question is, you know, will that care then extend beyond COVID? And again, I think many of us believe there's going to be a fundamental shift here away from brick and mortar and more to care in the home types of services. Because, I mean, think about it. If we can do it during a pandemic, why can't we do it afterwards? And people are going to get used to this. The other thing, too, is think about the next wave of COVID, right? So we're dealing with the here and now, but you have to be strategically thinking about, you know, six months from now, a year from now, two years from now. Hopefully we'll get a vaccine, but there are already, you know, many of the experts are saying we're going to have another wave this fall. Well, we can't shut the economy down again, right? So we have to have some mechanisms here to be able to manage the hospital capacity. And, and one of the ways we do that is to have the right triage systems in place to keep people at home to do care in the home, keep them out of the acute care setting, and only use the acute care setting for acute care and not lower levels of care. 
And that's a great segue into the last couple of questions here as we start to wrap up. We've had a couple of questions from uh, people very interested in the specifics of implementing uh, the type of program that you describe. So can you talk about what you see as an organizational structure and a pathway to rapidly scale up these elements as a nationwide system? First thing I want to do is, uh, as I said on the webinar, um, we have a compendium of uh, different uh, tools and protocols and workflows and algorithms and thoughts that uh, we've made available to everyone to learn during this crisis. And if you text your um, email address to the following number, it will send you a link. Uh, and then you click on that link and you'll have access to all the resources we have available and, and I've created basically a wiki. And so as I get more information shared with myself, I'll make it available to everybody. Uh, that phone number is 516-329-9330. Again, that's 516-329-9330. Um, so how do you rapidly scale? Well, um, you know, I, I guess there's there's two things to think about. There's this concept, uh, I'm a software engineer, and so in software engineering, we have terms called MVP and iteration. MVP is what you'd call a minimally viable product, meaning what would it take to get up and running immediately? And then iteration is how do you improve that or get the other components associated with, um, you know, uh, getting a full-fledged program up and running. You have to kind of figure this out for your own community. We launched a lot of components all at the same time, as I mentioned on the webinar. You know, the components associated, you got to have a video platform, you have to have a billing system, you have to have a triage system. You know, you have to have all these things. And that, that's, that can be very daunting and overwhelming. And, you know, you have to eat the elephant one piece at a time. So to me, as you start immediately with a triage system, if you already have AMPDS, that's great. You can use card 36 to help triage. There's a lot of online tools that are available, and this is listed on the wiki that I, I put out on that, that link you can get, that are self-assessment tools. Apple has an amazing one that's available for free. The CDC has an amazing one that's available for free. You can use this in your 911 center with a web browser to ask the questions um, and help navigate the patient to you know the, the right type of care, including self-care with self-care instructions. And basically, you, know, you can use that if you don't have more of these more sophisticated uh, systems to get up and running. The one thing I would encourage you to do is you've, you've got to have a documentation system for these so that you can at least document the encounter. And there's no reason why you can't use CAD for this, create some new problem natures, create new priorities in your CAD, try to document if it's, it's going to be your call takers in the short term to get up as an MVP so you can prop it up immediately and then iterate yourself forward. In that compendium of articles, actually, uh, I started to talk about on the Q&A session on the webinar uh, about a um, Dr. Joe Ryan, who's a very close friend of mine and, and working with a lot of the EMS grades um, out there, um, Todd Stout and Mike Tagman and Jerry Overton have been, you know, kicking this document around um, about how could we rapidly prop up a triage and, and using um, medical core volunteers from around the country that are coming back, but maybe probably should not be in practice because of their age or comorbidities. But, you know, if they had a, a way to, to volunteer and provide medical care, there are systems out there, um, again, that um, are free or that are available to help a clinician do proper triage. So look at the resources that are out there. You can set something up, you know, the, the, definitely the KISS principle, right? Keep it simple, um, is where you want to start. 
And then you can iterate your way forward. If you want to bill for these services, you're not going to likely get that up and running quickly on the provider side. That takes time. But make sure you get the documentation associated with the encounter to be able to, uh, you know, potentially bill for those in the future under the provider side physician, you know, part A provider billing. I also still believe that, uh, you know, these encounters potentially will be reimbursed by um, the federal government under you know, the COVID uh, um, reimbursement stuff or grants that are going to be out there, there'll be opportunities for that. So, you know, keep it simple. Look at the tools that are out there. You know, I think you could get something set up very quickly, um, likely with the resources you already have or potentially working with, um, you know, the hospital that you're working with. Keep in mind, unfortunately, at least for us, many of our providers, uh, you know, are sick or are having to work from home or on, or, or can't work because of comorbidities. And so, that's a whole labor pool that you can tap into to do these types of things um, and whether you have to bring them into your center. Um, we have people actually working remote and within the center. We're fortunate enough our technology allows us to do that. You know, we can leverage this and, and scale pretty quickly. Um, but hopefully that, you know, that's a starting point for you. That The biggest thing is to start to navigate patients to the right type of care at the right place at the right time, the right quality and the right cost. And these tools that are available online, at least for the short term, can help get you through COVID anyway, and then you can go from there. So staffing is one challenge uh, and, and funding is certainly another challenge. So we have a question here. We know that EMS systems are struggling financially to stay afloat. Uh, in these difficult times, what advice would you have in terms of spinning up a program like this quickly, easily, and uh and on a budget. Yeah. So first off, you know, um, I'm extremely, extremely nervous for, for EMS uh, because, um, you know, a majority of uh, ambulance services in the United States that aren't, you know, government run are small to medium sized providers, some for profit, some not for profit. Many of them, you know, are sitting on top of 30, maybe 60 days cash if you're lucky. And they're all seeing massive drops in volume right now um, if you don't have COVID in your communities, um, you know, at pandemic levels like we do. Um, so, you know, the question is, how do you, how do you, uh, you know, uh, survive that second disaster, right, which is the economic disaster of this situation? Because some of you may never see COVID in your communities because, uh, of all the efforts of, of people staying inside and flattening the curb are actually working. The advice I've been giving to pretty much every ambulance service that I've been talking with, first thing is start extending out your your, uh, your AP, go and get your grants and loans and whatever you can start to go after now um, using the government's uh, stuff or using any mechanism available to you, although there's, there's a massive onslaught of that happening. Um, so that's going to take you time to do. For those of you that have lower volume, um, I know many of you are struggling to try to not furlough your employees, um, but your number one cost is labor. So you spend your uh, labor dollars judiciously, manage your overtime, use PTO, things like that, um, anything to help reduce your, your expense load. Uh, in terms of shoestring budget to set this up, like I said, there are tools available for free on the internet that you can literally use. Like I said, Apple has an amazing tool. That uh, link is on the uh, wiki. The CDC, if you go to the CDC website, um, that's also on the wiki. I know the uh, Academy, uh, the, National, the International Academy of Emergency Dispatch is also putting together a, a web-based uh, assessment tool that they're, they're potentially going to release soon. Where there's a will, there's a way. Leverage your telephony systems, right? Many of you have, especially in the 911 world or your business uh, phone systems have, you know, automatic call distribution systems. So you can route these calls likely um, to different providers off net. 
Um, so, you know, use the resources that are already being paid for versus propping up new. That's what we did. We've not actually spent a penny of net new dollars to put this program together because we reallocated staff um, because we had, you know, while one part of our business got busy, the other part got really slow. Look at things like that as an opportunity and work with your hospitals, maybe work with other EMS agencies in the region to, you know, see what resources are available, who has the, you know, who has the CAD system, who has the telephony system, who has the bandwidth, you know, who has extra providers available. Because a lot of these things can be done from home. A lot of web services are available for very low uh, cost to set these kinds of systems up to, to share information in real time, just like, you know, Google Docs and, and those kinds of things. Um, to be able to, you know, build a way to communicate and share information across um, platforms, things like that. I think where there's, like I said, where there's a will, there's a way. And, um, you know, you have to be, uh, you know, very uh, innovative and out of the box in your thinking. Um, But I'm very confident with the tools that I put in that wiki. Um, You'll very quickly see, um, you know, there's a triage system available and it's just a matter of finding, you know, those endpoints of care where you can navigate patients to. And that's probably the bigger challenge, right? Um, But that's where you hopefully leverage a relationship with your urgent cares, your physicians, practices, your your hospitals to find ways to send these patients to and, and, and get them a, you know, a telephone or a video visit encounter versus an ambulance and a hospital, you know, stay. All right, Jonathan Washko, we can't thank you enough for putting together the webinar, answering uh, all these questions and, and sharing your knowledge. You've certainly gone uh, above and beyond for us. One more time, we would like to thank Zoll for sponsoring this podcast and helping bring the presentation to you. Jonathan, any uh, closing comments before we sign off for today? Words of advice or uh, uh, just closing remarks? Yeah. Um, again, I just want to thank everyone at Northwell Health for all the amazing work they're doing. Um, you know, we've been called the tip of the spear uh, in the EMS realm, and I agree with that. But, you know, there's everything behind the spear that makes it work, uh, which is, you know, our hospitals, our healthcare providers, everybody who supports them, you know, throughout our entire health network. Everybody is doing something to assist here in, in every department in the organization. And it's been just an amazing uh experience to be able to, to put something like this together and, and see all of the innovation happening across our entire region um, in response to this. As I mentioned before, you know, uh, please take this seriously. As they say, pray for the best, but plan for the worst. I, I know everybody's under uh, economic constraints and everybody's concerned. Um, and let's just pray that we can flatten the curve, uh, but also be preparing, you know, for that, for that economic impact of this. And how do we, how do we survive that going forward? Again, be thinking forward about uh, the end of this year. If uh, we don't get a vaccine and we have to go through this in another wave, now's the time to be putting the systems, the structure, the plans, the processes in place. Um, So maybe you guys got a break because it didn't hit your community, but in the next wave, you've now been given a tremendous amount of time due to the, the efforts of every American staying home or most Americans staying home to you know, realign and, and readjust in preparation for the next wave of this. And, and you need to be thinking that way if, if you've been given the blessing of having this opportunity in front of you. So that's, the, that's it for me. I would ask everybody, please uh, be safe and uh, stay well. Thank you so much, Jonathan. And uh, yeah, I'll I'll just echo that to our listeners. Thank you for what you're doing. Uh, Stay safe, stay well. We'll talk to you on the next webinar or podcast. Thanks again, Jonathan. You have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. This has been an episode of EMS World Podcast. You can find this audio and more like it on the podcast page of emsworld.com. 
You can also follow EMS World on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Thank you.